Church, please be seated. Langston Hughes was a 20th century uh, poet, and he wrote this autobiographical account of his false conversion. And I read it in English class, and it has stuck with me ever since, which, by the way, young people, gives hope you might use a little bit of what you learn in school. I wanted to read it. So he wrote, I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. There was a big revival at my Auntie Reed's church, and every night for weeks there had been much preaching, singing, praying, and shouting, and some very hardened sinners had been brought to Christ. Then just before the revival ended, they held a special meeting for children. My aunt spoke of it for days ahead, and that night I was escorted to the front row, placed on the mourner's bench with all the other young sinners who had not yet been brought to Jesus. My aunt told me that when you were saved, you saw a light and something happened to you inside, and Jesus came into your life, and God was with you from then on. She said you could see and hear and feel Jesus in your soul, and I believed her. I had heard a great many old people say the same thing, and it seemed to me they ought to know. So I sat there calmly in the hot, crowded church waiting for Jesus to come to me. The preacher preached a wonderful sermon. Won't you come? Won't you come to Jesus? Young lambs, won't you come? And he held out his arms to all of us young sinners there on the mourner's bench. And the little girls cried, and some of them jumped up and went to Jesus right away. But most of us just sat there. And still I kept waiting to see Jesus. Finally, all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved, except for one boy and me, the other boy being Wesley. Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was hot in the church and getting late. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's just get up and be saved. So he got up and was saved. Then I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and song swirled all around me in the little church. And I kept waiting for Jesus, waiting, waiting, but he didn't come. I wanted to see him, but nothing happened to me. I heard the songs and the minister saying, why don't you come? My dear child, why don't you come to Jesus? Jesus is waiting for you. He wants you. Why don't you come? Now it was really getting late. I began to be ashamed of myself, holding everything up so long. I began to wonder what God thought about Wesley, who certainly hadn't seen Jesus either. God had not struck Wesley down for taking his name in vain. So I decided that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up. And suddenly the whole room broke into a sea of shouting as they saw me rise. Waves of rejoicing swept the place. And that night, for the first time in my life, except for one, since I was a big boy, 12 years old, I cried. I cried in bed alone and couldn't stop. I buried my head under the quilts, but my aunt heard me. She woke up and told my uncle I was crying because the Holy Ghost had come into my life and because I had seen Jesus. 
But I was really crying because I couldn't bear to tell her that I had lied, that I had deceived everybody in the church, that I hadn't seen Jesus, and that now I didn't believe there was a Jesus anymore since he didn't come to help me. To everyone in that church, they would have thought that Langston and Wesley were saved since it seems like they made a decision, they, they got up and went to the altar. Where we're going to be in James gives us a proper understanding of salvation so that this doesn't happen. Where we're going to be in James is notoriously difficult. So if you find yourself struggling with these verses, here's a little bit of comfort. Basically, everyone in the church for 2,000 years has struggled with this passage. Martin Luther, right, who we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this reformer, he had a lot of difficulty with this passage. And coming here, I, I know we have to pray and ask God to help us understand and love what his word says. And I was thinking about us praying together as a church. Psalm 119, 18 came to my mind. It says, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. So I'm going to pray this over you, that the Lord will work. He will open your eyes to see and understand wonderful things from his instruction, difficult things. And I'm going to ask, can you please pray that for yourself too, quietly? Pray for the people in here that the Lord will work so we will see wonderful things together. Let us pray. Dear God, I am coming to you and asking, there is no higher name I can call God, your word is sweet and it is difficult. It comforts and it afflicts us where we need it. God, I pray you will use the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes so that we will see wonderful things together. Difficult, but wonderful things. God, I cannot do this. God, I pray that you will please Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. We need you. Jesus, I pray these things because you are the only one that can help us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So the passage is going to be up there on the screen, but I always encourage you, pull out your copy of God's Word, even if it's on a tablet or a phone, and let's read it together. So James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. See what I mean by this is difficult. James is saying some very difficult and I would say troubling things about our salvation, almost seeming like he's contradicting the thing we sing from the mountaintops, salvation by faith alone. So what do we do when it seems like the Bible is contradicting itself? Well, friends, we do what Christians have done for 2,000 years. We take a step back And we trust for many good reasons that this is the word of God and there are no contradictions in it. And yet, we do not just ignore the difficult things and the tensions. And instead, we wrestle with the tensions and try to understand them. First, being guided by God's word. But second, seeing how have Christians for 2,000 years understood this? So I wrestled a lot with how are we going to wrestle with this? And I think the most important place to start is what does the rest of the New Testament say about salvation? Let's start there. And I am very thankful to say the New Testament makes very clear salvation is by faith alone. I have just a number of verses just to real quickly walk through. So this isn't just me making this up. Romans 3.26. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the right time so that he would be just. And here we go. Justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification means this. God declares us as right before him at the moment that our faith is placed in Jesus Christ. So we are justified. Who? Who's justified here in the verse? The one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 5.1, just, uh, just like a chapter and a half after that. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there it is again, we are made right by faith in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the moment of faith, we are made right with God, and no longer are we God's enemy, but there is peace between us and him. Galatians 2.16, where the whole book, like imagine the false gospel of salvation by doing good things. Imagine it's like a pinata. 
in the book of Galatians, Paul's basically taking a baseball bat to that pinata. Listen to what he says. Because we know that a person is not justified, made right with God, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. And these are right, apostles, people who knew Jesus, followed Jesus. You would think if anyone could be saved by works, it'd be these guys. But he's saying, we've believed in Jesus to be saved. And this was so that we might be justified, made right with God by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. I mean, just in this one verse, Paul is like taking nails and nailing in the coffin of this false gospel, just one after another. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace, God's kindness and power. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Your faith and the grace and salvation are not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes will not perish but have eternal life. How are we saved from eternal death? By believing in Jesus Christ. Luke 23, verse 40 to 43. This kind of puts flesh and blood on everything we've been saying. Jesus on the cross, suffering the death of a criminal that he did not deserve. Two men by his side, one mocking him and the other rebuking the person mocking Jesus. And he says, don't you even fear God? Since you're undergoing the same punishment. We're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no time for this guy to go do the works of the law. And clearly, if he's dying the death of the worst kind of criminal, it's not like he had a whole life full of good works. But Jesus himself says, I'm going to see you in heaven today. In Acts 15.9, so early on in the church uh, starting up, there was this big council of the top uh, church leaders, even people who walked with Jesus, the disciples. And there was this big council where Paul the Apostle goes, and this is what he says to all of these guys. He says, he made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, cleansing their hearts, how? By faith. Our hearts are cleansed from sin by faith. Faith. And there, there's others, but we'd be here all day just on this point. And I am so thankful that Scripture is so clear that we are saved by faith. Because if I had to stand before the lawgiver and try to be right with him based on my performance, I'm done for. I know the depth of my sinfulness and that I can't, I can't balance out 
all the times I have loved what I should not have. I am so thankful that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did alone. But then when we think about James chapter 2 and all those troubling verses, James seems to be saying something different. A lot of talk about works. And it seems like James and Paul are kind of fighting with each other. But they're not if you look at what all of Scripture says about all of salvation. See, salvation is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. This is what Christians have declared for centuries. Salvation is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Listen to this. Matthew 13, 23. The one sown on the good ground. So this is talking using kind of farming illustrations for Christians. The one sown on the good ground. This is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields, some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. The idea being here, a Christian is one who hears the good news of Jesus, understands what God says, who produces fruit, which is this obedience that the Lord blesses. Matthew seven sixteen to 20. In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. He's using trees as an illustration of Christians. The good tree, a Christian, lives a life of obedience. This is good fruit. But the unchristian lives a life of disobedience. Word, no good fruit at all. Jesus says a good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. This idea of though our judgments are imperfect, we can, in a way, kind of see if someone's claim to be saved is true based on the fruit of their life. Obedience. One verse down, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There will be people on judgment day who think they're saved, who do good things, and they will be turned away by Christ. And the will of my Father is salvation by faith, but it's also obedience. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. It is faith that produces love. That's what matters. Ephesians 2.10, right? Ephesians 2 and 8, 8 and 9, just beautiful verses about salvation by faith alone. But look what Paul says in the next verse. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Philippians 2.12, I still remember being a teenager sitting in our basement, reading through Philippians, coming on this verse, and as Paul says here, being filled with fear and trembling. 
Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, here we go, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say, work hard to get your salvation, but live out your salvation and your faith and do it with fear and trembling because there are serious warnings about rejecting and rebelling Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, but now he, Jesus, has reconciled, made peace, reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So who is this true about? He says in verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying those who are saved by faith, those who are reconciled will remain grounded, steadfast, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, he, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. I love that. What are these people of his own possession? They're eager to do good works. In Acts 15, there's no verse for this. Big council, all the church leaders, and the council agreed. Jews and Gentiles, that that would be us Gentiles, can be saved by faith or are saved by faith. Do you know who was like the main guy in charge of that council? James. The same guy we believe wrote this book. So James and Paul at this council say, amen, we're saved by faith alone. So when we come to James, James isn't disagreeing with Paul or Jesus or any of the other New Testament authors. This is what James is making clear and everyone else in the New Testament makes clear. A life marked or known by obedience must happen in the true Christian. A life marked or known by obedience must happen in the Christian for two big reasons. He saves us to be his faithful people. That is one of the reasons he saves us. Yes, to make peace between us and God so that we can be with him for eternity. Yes, amen. But also to make a people for himself who are faithful and follow the law of freedom like James talks about. And real quick, I am so thankful that God frees me and saves me to obey. And I am, as we think about God's rules or his designs, what we were created to live in and flourish in, and when he saves us, what is he doing? He's bringing us back to the way it was supposed to be in the garden, following in his good design and enjoying fellowship with him forever. This is not a cruel, rough thing that God is doing and making a people who are faithful. This is God's kindness to us. But also, 
a life of obedience has to happen in the Christian because it has to happen. 2 Corinthians 5.17, in this verse, Paul makes it so clear that we are a spiritually new creation. If you have that verse, you can just throw it up there. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Or John 3, 7, where he talks about a new birth. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. What happens at salvation? We are spiritually made into a new person, given a new heart. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, spiritually a new creation. So obedience has to come from that. We are a new person. Many of you might really like to watch HGTV. I don't at all. Um, But a lot of the HGTV shows are where the people that know these things come in and the homeowners wants to remodel the house. And so the whole show is is about that. Here's the thing. God is not looking to remodel your heart, but to give you a whole new heart. Like he's not going into home to move around some chairs and throw some paint on. He's coming in to give you a new heart and a new life. He's building a whole new house when you are saved. So works flow and follow from that because you are a new person. And I am so thankful by this or for this because I look at the depths of my sinfulness and I often think, God, I don't want to be who I am today, tomorrow. And I definitely don't want to be who I am today, five years from now. And this gives good hope that God has made me a new person and is making me a new person to look more like Jesus. And I think the trouble is when we read passages like James or when we think about an obedient life, we realize we have this, or I think we have a not as full understanding of salvation as we should. I think rightly so. When people think of salvation, they think of it as faith in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit. He helps me up until I go to heaven, which is true. But all of Scripture makes it very clear. All of salvation is God saves us. We put our faith in him. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit who is living in us. We are made new, united with Christ. We persevere and endure until you meet your maker, which actually, by the way, is why I believe even more than I ever have in the assurance of salvation that you cannot lose your salvation. Do you know why? Because salvation is not just something that can be dropped or left. At salvation, you are made one with Christ in a spiritually new person. You can't lose that. And this is why Christians for centuries have said, salvation is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Saving faith is always followed by a life of obedience. And this is where we come to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. Where James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? James asks, James asks two questions and they expect a negative response. You could tell that by the context and a few other things. What good is a faith that doesn't have works? It's not good at all. Why? Because that faith can't save him. Why? Because a true saving faith is always followed by obedience. 
In verse 15 and 16, James gives an example of meaningless words, right? These people in need go to a Christian and he says, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed. He could have helped them, but he didn't. His words are meaningless, empty, and I would say mocking. And James makes it clear, this is a faith that doesn't have works. It's empty, it's mocking, it's meaningless. It's an empty claim. Like you, friend, could claim to be on the Eagles or the Jets, but it's an empty claim unless you are actually in the team. A claim doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So if you're here and you claim to be a Christian, what are you relying on for your salvation? Is it your performance? The good things you do? Do you believe what the scriptures make clear? Do you obey what they say? Because I realize there might be people here who are making false claims that they are a Christian. Verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Kind of like, you can have your salvation with works and I'll have mine with just faith. And James says, show me your faith without works. And here's the problem, you can't. And I will show you faith by my works. Just like Jesus was talking about the good fruit, bad fruit, you can kind of see based on the fruit whether their claim is true or not. That's exactly what's going on here. God is the ultimate judge But you can look at the obedience or disobedience in someone's life and have an imperfect understanding if that claim seems to be true. And I say that realizing that some of us might have kids, grandkids, spouses that make a claim to be saved. And I would just encourage you, look at the fruit. Is their life marked by confession and repentance? Because if not, it might be a fake claim and a humble, caring conversation might need to be had or maybe your prayers for them might need to change. Verse 19, I think, is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Demons believe things in Scripture. I think in many ways, or some ways, the demons have a better understanding of Scripture than we do because they were there. They saw these things happen. They shudder in fear because they know these things are true, yet they're not saved. This verse, I think, is so scary because it shows us that you can have an intellectual belief in things that we read in Scripture, but doesn't mean you're saved. You can believe that there is a God. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. You can believe there's going to be an apocalypse and Jesus will return. You can believe the earth was made in seven, seven literal days. You can fight against evolution all you want. Right? You can believe in 
many things, but doesn't mean you're saved. And just because you have an emotional response doesn't mean you're saved either. Because if you look, the demon shudder, right? That is an emotional response. We don't even have that to these true things. And working in youth ministry, I know all too well the danger of emotional responses. Right? The song hits just the right crescendo, just the right note. Everyone has their hands raised, lights lowered. They have this emotional response. doesn't mean you're saved. J.C. Ryle, famous Christian writer, said, I know no state of soul more dangerous than to imagine we are born again and sanctified by the Holy Ghost because we've picked up a few religious feelings or because we know a few religious things. They don't mean you're saved. Which should make us cry out, what is saving faith then? And I think a big thing when we think about the demons and their belief, the demons have no desire to be saved or redeemed or made right with God. So as we think about a saving faith, a saving faith is done all by the work of God where the Holy Spirit shows you your need for salvation, this burden of sin and a desire to be shown mercy and grace by God and trusting that Jesus is your only hope because he died in your place and rose again to save you. This is saving faith burden of sin, desire for mercy and grace, and a trust and a running to Christ, your only hope. Demons don't do that. And the people who just have an intellectual belief don't do that. The people who just have an emotional response don't do that. And I just want to encourage you. This might be the first time you are hearing these things. And I want to encourage you, if that is the case, believe You can do that now. Cry out to God for mercy. It is by faith alone, not through a prayer, not through understanding or only understanding things, not by works, but by faith. And in verse 20, James says, senseless person, foolish person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? In verse 21, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? Which should make you think, doesn't that just undo everything that the rest of the New Testament says? But jump down to verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was made right with God. It was credited to him as righteousness when he believed. Which came first? Being justified because of the whole thing with Isaac or believing? Which came first? It was believing. Genesis 15. When did Isaac's whole situation come? Genesis 22. So it is very clear in this text what came first. Salvation by faith alone, being made right with God by trusting in him. And what the obedience and works did was prove and show and give evidence he is saved. And that faith was genuine. And a real quick note 
Because when I read this, I am burdened by my own sinfulness. And I have been praying that you will be burdened, burdened by your own sinfulness. But here's the hope. Abraham wasn't perfect. We see in Genesis where to get out of trouble, he lied and deceived and pretended that his wife was not his wife. Which, by the way, guys, (laughs) don't ever do that. (laughs) Right? Convicted, the Lord came against Abraham, big deal. He did it again. Just a couple chapters later, like, not even just the wrath of God thing, but also like wrath of wife, not worth it. But he did it. Understandably, I mean, it's to save his life. But the idea being Abraham wasn't perfect. And yet he is used here as an example of faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 14. He, God, knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. God does not expect a perfect life. He knows we are made from dust. The Lord knows and understands. And normally I would spend more time just trying to give comfort, but I don't want in this sermon to accidentally give comfort to someone that shouldn't be comforted. So I'm going to leave it there. But I will say a life marked by obedience, is one of confession and repentance and actively working to kill sin, though imperfectly. Because the whole Bible is filled with imperfect people. And sometimes the obedient life is ups and downs. And I love the verse, the end of verse 23. Abraham was called God's friend. What beautiful personal language. Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. What hope do we have except that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners like you and me? In verse 22, he says, you see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And we would say, amen, It is not a saving faith, it's not a mature faith, it's not an active faith if it isn't followed by obedience. James even seems to say this in chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about suffering and he says, the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. A mature, complete, active faith is one that obeys All right, verse 24, probably the hardest verse in James chapter 2, and probably one of the hardest in Scripture. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But friend, what kind of faith has James been talking about for all of these verses? A fake faith. That's what he's talking about here. Another way you could read this is you see that a person is justified by works and not by an alone faith. Because an alone faith that does not produce works is not a saving faith. You won't be justified by that. But the works show and give evidence you are redeemed, you have been reconciled by the one true God. 
And in verse 25, James gives another example of a faithful woman, Rahab the prostitute in Scripture. And it says the same thing, basically, as Abraham, so we really won't wrestle with that. But I do want to point out two things. The first is that out of all the faithful people, God points, or James, through the Holy Spirit, points out, he uses a woman. In a culture where this probably would have come off odd. But that is beautiful. Out of all the people James could have used, he used a faithful woman. Because where would it be if it were not for the faithful women that God has put in our lives? And where would we be if it weren't for the faithful men that God has put us or put in our lives? And the other thing I want to point out is she was a prostitute, well known in Jericho for her sin. And yet what did God do? He saved her and was her friend. I don't know you and I don't know your story, but you are not too sinful to be saved and used by God. Look throughout all the scripture and you'll see God uses and saves the messiest of people. Those with hard hearts. So if, if you're just like, I am too messy, too burdened by sin, too stained by my uncleanliness, God, for all of history, has been saving, saving, hardened sinners. And in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We've all probably gone to an open casket funeral where there's no pretending that that person is dead. And there is no pretending that a faith without works is alive and okay. It would be unloving and untrue to pretend that faith is alive. I don't know about you, but these are a tough 12 verses. And I've been praying that the Lord will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and the Lord will work in our hearts and and apply it appropriately. I've been trusting that. But in just our last couple of moments, I wanted us to rest together in God's bigness in salvation. New Life Church, I want us to rest in the bigness of God to save us. Read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right, so Satan has blinded our minds and our hearts from the gospel. If you read verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Same God who said, let there be light in the beginning breaks through the darkness, through the hardness of heart, through the blindness to save you. He raises the dead. He does what you never could. You, You don't wake up in the morning and decide on your own, I'm gonna see today. 
I'm going to raise myself from spiritual death. It is God who does that. And there is great hope because you would be stuck in dead faith until you die. But if God is the one who saves, and he is, that means you have hope that he has never failed in setting out to do what he has done. God, bigness to save. God's bigness to save. Friends, I want us to rest in God's bigness to change our hearts. I read the commands in Scripture and I'm humbled. I know my heart prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to leave what I should not love. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, I read this verse very recently and it warmed my soul. Deuteronomy 36, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you will live. This uses very Old Testament language to show us what? God softens the hearts of the hardest of sinners. He softens the heart and changes the heart to love him with their whole soul. And I wish I had gotten this when I was a teenager. I was so caught up in trying to set up all these big plans to fight my sin, but because I loved something else, I didn't care about these plans and steps I was going to take to fight my sin. It didn't matter. I loved it, so I was going to go right to it. And I look at the sinfulness of my heart and I know I could not make my heart love God more than anything else if left to my own I couldn't do it and you can't either but the hope here is rest because God changes your heart and I find myself more and more thankful for the Holy Spirit like when I sin when I see my faults I I start to kind of crumble but then I remember The Holy Spirit works in my heart and makes me love God. So friends, plead with the Holy Spirit, make me love God more. Finally, rest in God's bigness to keep us. In Romans 8.30, this is what it says. Those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. They call this like the golden chain of salvation. Here's the good news. No one falls out. No one is called and justified and then falls out. No one's called, justified, or no one's called, justified, falls out. No one one falls out. God keeps those who are his from the beginning to the end. And there's Jude 24 One of the most wonderful verses, one of my favorites in all of Scripture. To him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. Rest in God's bigness to keep you. If you are here and you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you will wake up a Christian tomorrow morning. 
And it, it will be because God kept you. I absolutely believe God still does miracles today. Because if he didn't, I wouldn't wake up tomorrow a Christian. He keeps those who are his and no one falls out. I think of all the youth statistics of youth who leave the faith in middle school or after high school. And it is a large number and my heart breaks. I don't think my heart could take any of the teens I love very much in our youth group walking away. I don't think my heart could handle it. And I recently started to pray. Lord, I know it's impossible, but can you save every single one in our group? And I pray that for you. That he will save you and keep you because I want to go to heaven with you. I don't want to praise God with you forever with no sin, no distractions, no selfishness. I want that and I pray that. In this passage in James, God has used it for 2,000 years to make people Christians and to keep people Christians. I was just talking to a friend last week who said, I'm a Christian today because of this passage. And I've been praying through James's words, he will make Christians this morning and keep Christians this morning through his word. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then we will partake in communion and I'll I'm going to pray that the Lord will save us, change us, and keep us. And I would ask, pray the same for you and those you love. Let us pray. God, I am so thankful for the Holy Spirit. I don't know what the people here need And I can't, even if I knew, I can't do it. I can't convict. I can't challenge. I can't encourage. It's got to be you. I ask, Lord, that you will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I pray that you will make Christians this morning break through the darkness. And I pray, God, you will keep those who know you close. Hold on to us. I pray that you will bless our time of communion. You are so sweet to us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Communion. If you